Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. And today I have got another guest. Yeah. And I've got CQ with me. CQ is Mike Karaskio. Did I pronounce that right? Karaskio? Surprisingly good. Man. <laughs> that out of a German, uh, German mouth. Come on. Mm. Uh, well, Mike, you have, uh, you literally are actually two people. There is the CQ and there is the Mike. And we're going to explore that for the next little wee while because your story is quite unique. So, but first of all, welcome to my show. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, I'm so happy and grateful that you could make the time. I appreciate it. I'm I'm very excited to have this conversation. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm an open book and and uh, as much fun and great stuff, like we, we've, we've gone through some tough stuff and uh, I'm happy to talk about both. That's cool. That's cool. Well, indeed, Mike Karaskio. So that was how you were born, and that is how you grew up. Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm born and raised New York City, U.S., um, biggest city in the world. And um, until, I will not it, hold it, it against you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was it was it was great. I loved being a part of the city. There's such a dynamic energy to it. You know, the city that never sleeps. There's I grew up in kind of the the ghetto, the slums, um, you know, very poor neighborhood. Uh, my mom had me when she was a teenager. Dad wasn't in the picture. So very rough go out of it. Um, but, you know, it just, I never, I never really knew. Like, this was just my normal. And, um, yeah, growing up in the city was amazing to be around all the different cultures. And, you know, one block, you're in Koreatown. And the next block, you're in the Dominican area. And, like, you know, it was just, it was always something uh, new and unique. So. It also gave me a lot of opportunities to get into some trouble, but um, for the most part, it was good. And that's the great. It's it's a melting pot, isn't it? And that is such a beautiful thing. It is. I certainly lived in Berlin and I lived in other big towns where it is just so beautiful. You wake up and you you go down there and you have a, a, a Turkish coffee and a Turkish breakfast there, and then lunchtime you have something else. You go to the Italian, etc. And it's all part and parcel of your of your life, without you actually realizing it. So I, yeah, I missed it a little bit. Now living in a smaller part of, of New Zealand, a small town. You know. So now that's brilliant. But as you say, uh, being in a large town at a time when cell phones were not yet so prevalent and where, where cameras were not yet there so widely mm -hmm. available, uh, you got away probably with a lot of shit uh, that... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got into my fair share and, 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 and I got caught for, for a time when, you know, internet and facial recognition and all these things were there. I got caught, caught quite a bit. Um, but, you know, every time I got caught, maybe three things I got away with. But, you know, it's, it's growing up on the, you know, on the streets, really, because, you know, my mom worked three jobs to keep us, you know, afloat. And, and uh, so I kind of just had a lot of free time to just kind of roam and... And back then, you know, video games at home weren't a big thing. Computers mm. at home weren't a big thing. Netflix. Uh, so we went out in the street and we, we just kind of uh, got into trouble. That's what mm. we did. True. Trouble is part of, of being a youngster. Um, did you end up um, having to work yourself after school? Uh, did you did you so, get work <laughs> in, in one shape or yeah, theater? Pretty, pretty early on, man. I think my first job came, I think I was about 16 and... and 
I, I just had this thing where like, I wanted to make my own. Like I was tired of being poor. You know, we <laughs> I used to steal a lot when I was young because we didn't have. And so, um, you know, if I wanted that, that little cake, you know, little candy thing, I had to steal it because I didn't have the money to pay for it or that toy I had mm. to steal. Um, so when I got to kind of working age, I was about 16 and I, 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 I worked from like the minute I could. And I had a part-time gig at a bookstore, at a part-time gig at a video game store. Um, in the summers, I worked at an ice cream, at a, a little ice cream place. So like I, I, I worked as well as going to school full-time um, as much as I could. Yeah. Same here, same here. I come from poor circumstances and from the word go, I was working after school to a degree just that it was uh, kind of a normal life. It is, mm -hmm. you go to school, then you stack wood in, in, in some place or do whatever you do in order to get the money in. And I actually did never realize that, that other kids don't have it like that. That's right. It was just normal. It was just what just you did. do it. Well, exactly. So, uh, having said that, and, and at some stage, when I was young, when I was still uh, well, 17, 18, in Germany, we still had the draft. So, at that time, military was very much on the cards, and I got mustered, basically. But we had the opportunity to, to either choose military or choose St. John's Ambulance or stuff like that. So, I ended up doing, actually, becoming a paramedic in my spare time. Um, instead of being the army, how was the army for you? Was that an attraction, or was that was that something that you maybe were falling into or being falled into, however you call that? I.e., yeah. uh, sometimes you hear stories that that kids are in, in front of a judge and they say, you know, right. <laughs> get your right. shit together in the happen. military or you go to jail. Was that something it like does, that for you? It does happen. It does happen for me. Um, to remember, I was you know from New York City. I was a senior in high school when 9/11 happened. September 11, 2001 happened. I was a senior in high school, and that was a very pivotal moment for me because prior to that, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do post high school. I knew college really wasn't in the cards for me. You know, again, growing up poor and inner city kid. I mean, I was smart. I, I did really great in school, but um, I had trouble with other people and fights and things like that. But but the the book stuff I was actually pretty good at um, the test taking. But um, yeah, once that happened, uh, this idea of service and joining the military kind of came into my my head. It was never a thought really before. I never really knew anyone that served um, before that. I wasn't like, oh, second generation, third generation soldier mm -hmm. and things like mm -hmm. you see. Um, and so, you know, when that happened, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, this is, I need to do this. I need to I need to join. I need to fight for my country. I didn't, I didn't realize there were other countries in the world that hated us. I just assumed naive kid i'm like yeah we all get along i mean i'm I'm from new york city it proves we all get along uh but i didn't realize the rest of the world doesn't always see it that way um and so literally i i finished out that that senior year in high school i signed up right after i graduated um but at that time there were so many people signing up that they couldn't intake all the numbers all at once and so i joined what's called the delayed entry program which basically means I swore in, I did all the paperwork, I was officially accepted by the army, but it took until, so I graduated, you know, at the end of, in 2002, the summer of 2002, it was about six months before they could actually get me into basic training. So January of 2003 is actually when I entered the service. 
Um, but I would have went in right after, right as soon as I graduated, if I could, but um, I had to wait about six, seven months. And then, yeah, went to basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia, um, which, you know, being a New York City kid my whole life, never really traveling. That was a big, let me tell you something, that's a big difference going from inner city to Georgia, where, you know, uh, uh, woods and the forest and hot and buggy and all these different things. Um, was there for a couple months. I went through infantry school. I, I signed up to join the infantry. They're, they're, they're kind of the, you know, the front line. You know, you're not, you're not a cook. You're not a mechanic. You don't really have a job. Your job is to do patrols. Your job is to do escorts. Your job is to do security. You're the frontline fighter. You know, you're the, we call it the tip of the spear in, in the army. Um, and so I, I did that job. I, I, right after infantry school, I went to airborne school. So literally my job skills were uh, shoot people and jump out of airplanes. Those are, those are the job skills I had in the military. And, um, and I was good at my job. But um, from literally from there, once I finished all my training, I was stationed overseas in Italy. So, you know, you, you could end up in, you know, you could end up in, in North Carolina or, or Florida, or all these different places. My first duty station as a, as a soldier at 19 years old was Italy. So it's an American base in Italy called uh, uh, Caserma, Italy. It's the 173rd Airborne um, out of Vicenza, Italy, part of the European Task Force. The idea being that all these big military installations are here in the States, obviously, you know, 82nd Airborne, very big mm. organizations. Well, they needed places around the world. So we have bases in Germany, we have bases in Italy, we have bases in Korea. You need places that if something were to happen in the world, we're kind of already halfway there, you know, because flying, you know, getting everybody ready in the States and then flying them over to God knows where could take 18, 19, 20 hours. Well, if we're in Italy, we were kind of a quick reaction force. We could get, be given a two hour heads up. They can go, hey, uh, it's go time. We have our bags packed already at all times. Within two hours, we're on a plane already going to wherever we need to be. Um, so that was kind of the idea. So I ended up there and then a couple of combat deployments after that. Wow, wow. So airborne school, uh, that is about four months, is that right? Uh, no, so airborne school is actually even faster now. So I, when I went through it, it was three weeks. Three it's weeks, very, bloody hell. It's, really it's very quick training. Very condensed. The idea is the first week was just a lot of the understanding the principles, the ideals, yeah. doing a lot of uh, practicing on the ground. The second week, we did a lot of work. It's like wire work. You're hanging wires, learning how to control it and being dropped out of a tower. And then the third week is actually performing the jumps well, now, since I've been out, they've actually condensed it to two weeks. And now it's, it's even shorter. You, you get your airborne wings in two weeks. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very quick training. Which, of course, uh, can be good and can be effective if you want to put a lot of men through training. Uh, or it can be actually, hmm, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Could you? You probably could teach a doctor what to do in in two months, maybe. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure. Though. They're specialized. Not so sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, here's the thing. Especially when it comes to airborne school specifically, yeah. there's not a lot of principles in it. I mean, you right. jump out of the airplane, hope that the parachute opens, and then just kind of steer it in and learn how to. It's more than anything. The majority of the time is learning how to absorb the impact on the ground because to understand a military parachute it's not like skydiving you don't have a lot of steering you don't have brakes 
the military parachute is designed to deploy a troop uh, and to get him to the ground as fast as humanly possible without killing him. Like, that's the idea. Because you have to imagine, if we're jumping into a country, we're invading. They're going to be shooting at us. So the idea is you need to get out of the plane, to the ground, and actively in the combat as fast as possible. So we don't have brakes. We don't have steering. It, uh-huh. it literally, uh, you hit the ground. I think I think it was like 35 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour. That's how fast you hit the ground. Your, your body is traveling at that speed. So we have to learn to absorb that impact. Uh, you learn what's called yeah. a PLF, a parachute landing fall. Um, and, and it's really, ju- it's, it's like getting hit by a car. It's, uh-huh. it's not pleasant, but we practice and practice and practice. So really, more than anything, airborne school is nothing else than just learning how to hit the ground very hard very fast okay so what i'm trying to gauge here so you've got your infantry school mm-hmm. which is what two three months four months yeah it's a couple months yep a couple of months then you have got two weeks to get your wings mm-hmm. then you will have basically within your unit training um yep. that is what six months before you get deployed it, it or? D- depends depends on um usually you know before deployment we'll, we'll yeah. do extra training my my specific case was a very worst case scenario because i joined at 18 and i think i turned 19 as basic training which is six to eight weeks then infantry school which was another two months then airborne school which is two weeks i got sent to my unit and within a few weeks i was in iraq uh, as as a 19 year old brand exactly. new private that had zero idea, I got connected with my unit as they were deploying, and literally had no idea what I was doing. I hadn't trained with these guys. I didn't I didn't, I didn't know anybody's name, and here I am now in combat with these people, relying on them to teach me how, what what the hell I'm doing, um, which which led to a lot of hilarious bad situations. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was it wasn't the best case scenario in my specific story. But the idea <laughs> is, you would get to your unit, you'd have months and months and months to train with them and exactly. build that cohesive yeah. bond, that brotherhood, um, and not just get immediately dropped into a combat zone at 18, 19 years old. Mm. I mean, that is what your forebears did, and what my forebears did. Okay, that is that was just the way it was. There was no psychological conditioning. There was no, uh, I mean, these kind of unit cohesiveness kind of things. The the, the Germans in the Second World War, yes, there were units that were very closely knit and really you you were fighting for your brother and with your brother next to you. But prior to that, the First World War, it was probably not so much. They were just thrown together in willy-nilly kind of system sometimes depending upon you on the height you were you know right. ordered to stand in line and if you happen to be bigger than you on the side and this group goes there kind of a thing so bizarre yeah um so but we've learned more and more the importance of the brotherhood of of being together in a team that Absolutely. uh works together and it's that brotherhood for which you take the risks and it's that brotherhood for which you go out there and are happy to risk life and limb Mm -hmm. as you did so it makes it hard so you were a smart ass cocky new yorker 
who <laughs> had his wings clipped in Georgia. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then <laughs> you got the little wings to, <laughs> as a replacement, yeah. and then <laughs> you went to Iraq. Hello. <laughs> yeah, That's 2003, part of the big uh, airborne jump into Iraq. It was... Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was, it was a tough time. Yeah, uh, you were you were two years. You did two combat patrols, didn't uh, combat? Um, how do you call them? Deployments. Yeah, deployments. Thank you. Um, each one, what nine months, six months? Oh man, what? I wish, I wish. So unfortunately, so the how it happened is when they said that the one seventy third was going to jump into Iraq, yeah. we were told we were going to jump in. We were going to, uh, it was Bashur, it's the northern part of Iraq. We were going to push down, um, yeah. establish, you know, get an airport. We're going we're gonna to take over an airport. And basically that was going to create the, the first base that then they could fly planes in safely. Mm, yeah. And then we'd get pulled out. They said three weeks tops. <laughs> we spent 15 months. 15 months. 15 months. It was not, yeah. it was not enjoyable. It because it was all the it was all the start. It was no one knew. They were just making up as they went. Yeah, uh, a whilst, lot of it. Yeah. yeah, a lot of it was we we were we were treading new ground. We were breaking mm-hmm. new grounds. Um, I, I, you know, was part of. You know, we built you know three or four bases that are now you know large bases there and and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. We we built it when it was just sandbags. Um, <laughs> and so um, yeah, it was it was a, it was a tough year. It was a tough year, that one. But, I mean, the way I understand the uh, Iraq war, initially you went in there, shock and awe and everything, uh, and then you quickly overwhelmed uh, the forces there. So, and then the first year uh, was actually not as bad as far as insurgency uh, was concerned in, uh, in as far as, as guerrilla warfare against the Americans right. was concerned. Am I right there or did you so, experience a different, a different scenario in the area that you were? Kind of yes and no. Yes and no. And I mean, it really does depend where in the country you were at what specific time and as yeah. far as what level of resistance you received. You know, when the first couple of weeks, Iraq still had a military. They uh, still uh, were following the dictatorship. They were still doing that. Sure. So there was pockets of uh, resistance. And but but again, we we have a superior army. We have a superior air force, and we I mean we hammered the hell out of them with with rockets and missiles, targeted mm-hmm. strikes, and, and explode. Like just I mean, we left them devastated. Like you said, shock and awe. Um, so there wasn't you know a ton of resistance, but we definitely had plenty of firefights um the first year was really establishing kind of a foothold in the country and and building up what it would be um yeah you're right that that more of the insurgency part of it definitely came in towards the end because i can i can remember very intense kind of fighting in the very early days with a large portion of just trying to get control and and kind of normalcy in the next couple months and then it was towards the end of our tour there that we started seeing more of like the IEDs, the improvised uh, explosive devices, uh, and more of those kind of pocket resistance fighters and people yeah. that were just taking shots and then running or setting up bombs mm-hmm. and running. Um, so yeah, that was definitely towards the end of that first year and then obviously more moving forward. Mm. 
So 15 months in a hot hell, um, where initially you wouldn't have had many showers and you would have had more dust baths than, than a bloody chicken in its coop. Uh, yeah. So that, then you came home. Um, how long did you stay home? Yes, yeah, so we finally, finally got back to Italy. Um, and I, I'll never forget, as we were, we landed, big, you know, pomp and circumstance, welcome home, we're getting on the buses, because we actually landed in um, Germany, or was it Germany? Aviano, Aviano, Italy. But we had to take a bus back to our base, and as we're getting on the bus and we're rolling out and, and, and you know, we're getting closer to the base, I remember one of our, our leadership stood up and he goes, uh, he goes, guys, you know, that was hell. We got through it, you know, obviously we, we lost some people and, and, and things like that. But for the most part, we, we did it. And um, they go, look, you're going to get, you're going to get 30 days off. You're going to get 30 days, paid vacation. You earned it. Enjoy it. Don't get stupid. Don't, don't whatever, drink yourselves to death or whatever. Um, but he goes, when you get back, it's back to business because we just found out one year from today, we're deploying again. Uh, so you're going to get a month off and then we're going to, we're going to go hard training for 10 months. Cool. And then they would, they, cool. uh, they gave us another month off right before the deployment. Um, cool. So, so yeah, so it was, it was, you had the bookends of kind of a, of a mm. 30 day break. Mm. I mean, 10 months of intense, intense mm. training where we even actually went to Germany. We were in Germany for about two months training in uh, Holmsfeld and, and Grafenbeer. Um, and then uh, another 30 day off right before the deployment. And then, then we headed to Afghanistan. Hmm. Damn, damn. So it was not even going back into the same theater of war. It was, uh, why don't we mix you up a little bit? Let's, come on. So you just learned a few words Iraqi? <laughs> Let's do <laughs> Afghanistan, yes. That's right. That's <laughs> now right. that makes not sense, but hey, uh, this is this is how the the forces are rolling. Fair call. Yeah. Bloody hell, Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. we, we were Afghanistan. considered. So we were Sorry. considered kind of a a. Um, I, I hate to say talk like this because it sounds very cocky and very you know. But we were considered an elite fighting force. Mm. Wherever they put us, you know, we gave them hell. We mm. we did the job, no matter the nastiest, dirtiest. Worse odds, we always got the job done. You know, where they were sending in large brigades and divisions and, and region, like hundreds and hundreds of troops, we're going in 30 guys and getting the job done. Um, so, so we quickly gained a reputation um, for getting put into the worst, worst places and um, coming out through hell. There's a really, really great documentary called Restrepo about the guys that I served with. It was, it was the deployment after the one I got injured in. Um, but you can see just the conditions our guys were always put in and the insurmountable odds we were put up against and just the stubbornness to, to I mean, fight back with hell. And um, my unit, the 173rd, which I, I, I proudly wear on my, on my uh, sleeve here, um, has the most living medal of honor the highest honor you can possibly have we have the most living medal of honor recipients in in middle military history and the majority of them coming from the last 10 years or so so these are men that fight tooth and nail against all odds and so um you know really put in some of the worst places in the world and and with with limited resources limited support um yeah and we and we get the job done 
Did you know about that reputation uh, of your unit? Uh, or was that reputation building up as essentially you were part of it? Uh, honestly, I, I was kind of part of it because, you know, the unit has a history that goes back to Vietnam. They, mm -hmm. they were the last uh, uh, unit to do a full-on airborne assault was in Vietnam. So, you know, years later than to jump into Iraq in 2003. So there, there was a history of being this, you know, excellent airborne, you know, infantry unit. Um, but really, we've laid our stamp in history from, from 2003 on. Uh, the jump into Iraq, uh, the deployments in 2005, we were getting, I mean, it really was every other year we were getting deployed. So it was 2003, 2005, 2007, 2008, 2009. Like it just, they kept getting sent out. I know guys that were still there that were on their seventh, eighth deployment. Um, so it, it really is, uh, they put those boys through hell. It really did. Um, I, I, I wanted to be there. I wanted mm -hmm. to continue. I wanted to continue serving. It wasn't my choice to give it up. I, I had that choice taken away from me, obviously. Um, and, uh, at, on my second on tour, but yeah, had I not gotten injured, I'd, who knows how many deployments I'd have under my belt at this point. I guess you, it is really hard to imagine if you have never been part of such a brotherhood of such a of such a, a team where there is no question about the integrity of the man next to you. And you know absolutely everything about him because you spend so many nights in bloody atrocious conditions and, and talking. So it is there you are here and 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 a pride comes over you and a a Hey, go come get some. Let's 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 do that. <laughs> Whatever it is out there. Yeah. Um, hey, no, and that's I, I understand that hundred percent. Having said that, how many of the guys got injured around you? Because when you're out there, the tip of the spear, a lot of people want to have a part of you, preferably oh, yeah. your head on a stick, actually. Um, yeah. But if that doesn't work, then blood and a few pounds of flesh will do. So how many guys did end up getting injured and killed? Uh, you? Yeah, that's it's I mean, honestly, I couldn't even tell you the number. Hmm. And fortunately, we lost we lost a lot of guys, lost a lot of guys in in, in numerous, you know, engagements over across the, the years that we were there. Um, even worse is that sometimes it wasn't even combat. We, we lost a handful of guys in a helicopter crash hmm. when just, it just, it was, it, it was nobody's fault. It was nobody's fault. Sometimes it, these things happen. Um, we lost guys to, to accidents. We lost guys in roadside bombs. We lost guys, obviously guys getting injured and killed uh, in, in action, in combat. Um, yeah. Too many. The answer is too many. Um, but I, I lost a lot of good friends, and and as far as the the number of guys injured um, was luckily not as high as it could have been. You know, we had so many close calls. We had you know, vehicles that were blown up that that people were able to walk out walk away from. Um, number of guys. I have a good friend of mine who's been shot twice and was able to kind of just shrug it off. Um, and so I was probably especially that year, the 2005 deployment, I was probably the most critically injured guy to survive. 
if not in the top two or three, um, because I, I've been shot five times and and um, pretty critically injured. Um, but yeah, you, you really did hit on the head though about the about the brotherhood. You know, these are guys that you hate each other. You really, after being stuck in these conditions, you start to hate each other. Like you really, but it, it, it's almost this motivation of like, in spite of you, I'm going to survive. Like I'm going to live in spite of you. I hate you so much. Uh, but <laughs> you, you, you live for these guys. You bleed for these guys. Um, I always joke, the reason I got shot is because uh, we were ambushed and, and one of the guys got shot first and he was shot in the open. Um, he dropped down. He had gotten shot twice through the leg couldn't get up, couldn't walk, and they were still shooting at him. And I, I saw it, and I knew that if I didn't do something, they were going to kill him. And so I ran out there and grabbed him, and I dragged him back. In the process, I got shot, and it was a whole thing. But I can honestly say, out of not just my team, not just my squad, not just my platoon, not just my company, but probably in the entire brigade of hundreds of men, I hated that guy the worst. Like, I really... Me and this guy did not get along. We fundamentally did not like each other. But in that moment, it didn't matter. I didn't, I didn't see, like I knew who it was. It's not like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't save him without knowing. I knew exactly who it was. He's a member of my own team. It was only, we had four man teams. And so I knew exactly who it was, but it didn't matter who it was is the point. And I know that if I had been shot, he'd have done the same for me. That's just the way it works. You don't, you don't think, you don't hesitate, you, you act. And um, yeah, but I, I do wish it would have been anybody else besides him. <laughs> like if I was going to, you know, get shot and spend, you know, years in the hospital and, and this and all that, I, I really wish it would have been for somebody I liked. <laughs> if I had a choice, if I had a choice. Maybe, maybe that, is, that is part of the journey, I guess. Um, I which, think so. where, where you had to, to think about the energies of the cosmos and or whoever is out there and, and uh, giving you an extra challenge, like the little, the little cherry on the top of the cake. That's eh? right. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Me and this guy, and, and you would think that like, oh, this was that moment that, you know, because if this was a movie, that's the moment where they became lifelong friends. That's the moment that, uh, nope, nope. nope. Uh, I, He's I still can an asshole. That's you, right. <laughs> I can honestly tell you, since that moment, since that day, I dragged, uh, I, uh, you know, after everything that happened, I, I got airlifted out and they, they put me under to do these surgeries and things. When I woke up in the, ho the main hospital of Afghanistan, I woke up and I opened my eyes and I looked straight across the room he was in the bed facing me. He was in the opposite bed of the room and he kind of gave me one of these. That's it. That's the, like, we haven't talked since then. Like we haven't, we haven't shared a word because it, it, it would be phony to be like, you know, we're friends now. We weren't friends before it. We, yeah. I mean, we were brothers. We were, we were, yeah. we were lying. I mean, battle hard and whatnot. Um, but, but we're not going to pretend that like we like each other all of a sudden we, we never got along. So um, that was a great sign of respect for him to be like, Hey, you know, glad we both uh -huh. made it out of there. And, and, and that's that. And <laughs> we left it there and it's been what 15, yeah, cause it's 2005, 15 yeah. years. And um, what did yeah. hit you? Um, you were, you were shot at was that what 7.62 by 39. So an AK, AK round. That's right. That's right. Uh, it was actually an RPK. So it's seven, six, two, and they were armor piercing rounds. So, uh, yeah, real, real nasty stuff. 
that is so for those of you who are not shooters out there who have done my rifles these are fast moving quite decent uh mass uh bullets and when they impact with meat then the meat typically loses and yeah. it's uh, what happens with such velocity shots is that there is a temporary cavity so whilst the bullet might look like the end of your finger um this this size about what however happens in the body here you're talking about you know half oh, yeah. the eight size now yeah. one half of that through a leg bloody hell make that five come on man you're pushing it yeah. you really yeah. you really had to go for five cq <laughs> honestly <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment. What can I say? <laughs> you um, did. You did. Oh yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, we. You know, I, I took. Um, I was. I'm not a medic. Any any sort of medic, but you know, part of the infantry, we we would have. Um, we take these classes on, on on kind of medical stuff to. Mm -hmm. Because God forbid, I need to render aid to somebody until a medic can get to them. So you know, IV, splint, tourniquet, things like that. Um, but I'll always remember. They're like, look, entry holes very small. Exit holes, very large. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate that of the five shots, so I actually got shot once right there in the bicep, uh, didn't exit. So luckily, I was very fortunate. And again, I hate to sound like I'm bragging. I was in really good shape. We worked out all the time, you know, hustled up and down mountains all the time. I was in great shape. And as I was carrying the guy, I was kind of flexing, right? Because I'm dragging this guy. And that's when the bullet hit me. So it hit me at kind of the, the thickest part of the meat and while I'm flexing and muscle is, is denser than fat. And so uh, it slowed the bullet enough that when it hit the bone, completely obliterated the bone. I mean, I had, I had nothing left of bone, but it didn't exit. It actually stopped the bullet. Um, then, but the unfortunate part was I had gotten hit uh, through like, almost like in your arm, underarm um or armpit right and it went up hit my clavicle and then came out my back which big hole and the other two i had gotten shot uh actually in the heart believe it or not i actually got shot in the heart and in the gut luckily my armor had stopped the rounds from penetrating but the force the impact actually shattered all my ribs collapsed my lung caused a crazy amount of internal bleeding and then I had the one that actually went through my hand and piece took off my, uh, the, the good mm. finger. So I was about uh, to say, of all the fingers, you had to lose that yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, it it's easier to flick people off without them realizing now, though. So, uh, true, 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 true. Um, yeah, so I, I, was, I was pretty critically wounded um, and, and can honestly say I was bleeding to death uh, as I lay there. And just very fortunate that I had I mean, we had such an incredibly good, I mean, to understand really, we had um, was two helicopters that had came down on two different mountain peaks. There was only maybe eight of us in my helicopter. So for the first guy to get injured almost immediately, then me to get injured right after that, you're down to six guys. And for them to stave off an ambush where they had the high ground, they were entrenched, they were better positioned. Obviously we had, luckily we had great air support. Um, it's 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 a testament to how well we were trained, how well we were battle hardened. That my six guys on my mountainside could keep us alive while while birds did what they did. The other team on the other hillside did what they had they had to do. Um, I had I had two guys rendering aid 
So really that six man, you know, squad becomes a four man because I had two guys rendering eight on me because I'm, I'm, I was bleeding to death and, um, you know, strapping tourniquets on and, and packing the wounds and things. Um, the only reason I'm alive today is because of the quick acting of my, of my team. Um, the fact that we had, uh, luckily we had a flight medic with us. So as soon as I was able to get back to the Blackhawk, we actually had a, a, a trauma surgeon basically on the plane already rendering aid to me and, and properly putting on tourniquets and, you know, saved my arm, saved my life. Um, so yeah, very, well, very fortunate. Again, for those of you out there, uh, you sort of see in the in the films someone gets sh sh uh, shot in the shoulder and they shake it off and walk, mm. and then you know, ten seconds later they're doing heroic things. Bullshit, absolute <laughs> bullshit. Um, the shoulder is one of the dodgiest things to get a bullet in. Yeah. It is full of nerves, full of blood vessels. These blood vessels, they bleed like stink. So the injury that you have described is pretty, pretty, it's one of the worst injuries that you probably can have because yeah. it is so difficult to get to. For me as a doctor, you've got all these bloody shattered bones in the way and somewhere in that deep mess, there is an artery that makes you bleed to death in 10 minutes. Hey, great. <laughs> Give me more of that. Yeah. Um, so whoever was with you there, wow, these boys yeah. definitely rescued your love, no doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. I um as I was laying there, um, and, and again, the, I had actually gotten shot, I think, twice before I realized it. Huh. And then it was the ones that hit me in the armor that it knocked me off my feet because it's like huh. getting hit by a car. It's like hitting, huh. you know, it, it just it you know, the bullets hitting you at, at, you know, whatever, faster than light speed yeah. and, and it's stopping at your chest. Like you yeah. get, you, you get blown off your feet. And so my brain was telling me, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, you know, yeah. and my body just wasn't. And, and it was mm -hmm. then that I realized, oh my God, I think I'm hit. And, and I, my first thought is, oh my God, I'm paralyzed. Cause like my feet didn't want to move. My arms didn't want to move. Um, it wasn't, you know, I, I, I've been in plenty of firefights. I've had plenty of, you know, been through rock through explosions and things like that. So I knew I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm afraid. And I'm not, like, it's just like my body literally was like, no, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. It went into shock. Mm -hmm. It went into complete shock. And um, as I'm laying there, it was like, I couldn't really do anything. And, and one of the guys came and started performing A and he's like, hey, you're hit, you're hit, you're bleeding. And I just, all I could think is, I was like, where, where am I hit? Where am I hit? Cause I couldn't, honestly, I didn't really feel anything. Like my, my adrenaline was going and my, my heart was pumping and I, but I couldn't feel anything. And, you know, he starts patting me down. He's like, he's like, there's blood everywhere. I was like, oh, that's, that's not good. Um, and, and as I'm laying there and he's, you know, he's just putting the things on me and the bandages and I'm, I'm like, okay, move your feet, move your feet. If I can move my feet, at least I know I'm not, you know, paralyzed, you know, completely paralyzed. And soon my, my feet started to move again. I'm like, oh my God, okay, cool. Move your hands. Move your hands. And I could tell that something was wrong with my, like I was able to move my arms, but not really. Um, and so I knew something was pretty wrong and it was that part where as like the adrenaline starting to calm down. And by the way, there's a firefight happening. I mean, there are bullets, explosions, rockets, grenades happening. And these guys are, are covering me. Um, at one point somebody screamed grenade and like the guy that was rendering aid on me actually threw his body over me to protect me. So like, and I'm like, at this point, I'm like, all right, I already banged up man. protect yourself. But he was in his mind, he wasn't going to let anything more happen to me at that point. And so he threw his body over me, blew up, and then he's just, he went right back to work. Um, 
And uh, finally, I, I, I felt, because I'm laying flat on my back, but I felt as if there was like a giant rock right under my shoulder blade. It just felt like you were laying down and there, you're like, but you're laying on this really pointy rock. And you're like, ah, it wasn't painful, just super uncomfortable. And I'm like, I think something's wrong. I think something's wrong. And so I'm like, get me off this rock. And he's like, you're flat on your back. There's nothing there. I said, then there's something wrong. And so he had slid his hand inside my vest in the back and immediately yanked it out. And it was just, I mean, drenched uh, with blood. And so he's like, oh my God, there's a hole. And I was like, well, like uh, what kind of hole? And he just kind of balls up his fist and he's like. <laughs> yeah, that's my point. Like, that's yeah. not good. That's yeah. not good. And, and it was at that point that I could start to feel like I was, like if you're a battery, like I could feel I was draining. Yeah. Like I, and, I, and in my head, I'm like, oh my God, I'm bleeding to death. I could, I could literally feel like just my energy, just everything I felt, I was starting to feel tired. And I was like, I was like, and I told him, I'm like, I'm bleeding to death. I'm like, you've got to fill that hole. You've got to fill the hole. And so we had these things called curlix, these little bandages pre-wrapped and popped it open. I was like, dude, don't even unwrap it. Just shove it in there. And he just, that's, that was the first time I felt something. He jammed it in that hole and I screamed because it was not good. It was not a good feeling. Um, but he jammed it, he wrapped it up. And the next thing I know, the other guy shows up and you know, they're like, all right, you know, we called the birds back in and, you know, the area was too hot. There was too many bullets and things. They couldn't risk it. So they were going to land way downhill. And he goes, don't worry, we're going to drag you hmm. to the, <laughs> I was like, oh, hell no, you're not. I mean, are you crazy? Like we're on the side of this dirty, rocky mountainous. If you drag me down this mountain, I will die before we get to that helicopter. <laughs> They're like, no, you crazy. We can't, we can't. I was like, pick me up. Like my legs were starting to move. I'm like, I can run. I was like, I can't do anything else. I couldn't move my arms at all, but I'm like, I can run. I can, I can move my legs. And they're like, no, no, no. I said, listen, if I die, it's your fault. And after that, they're like, oh shit. And so they, they picked me up one arm under over each guy's shoulder. And I mean, we just hauled ass. We hauled ass down the mountain and um, they got me to the bird. And after that, it was... You know, it's a long road to recovery after that. But they, the, my guys, did what they had to do. They, they, they saved my life and and uh, and went back and went back to work and and took care of the enemy. Yeah. For them, that's easy because that's what you do. That's what they've been trained for. That's what. That's the easy part. You throw yourself back into your work, and you just the next firefight and the next firefight, and then the next patrol, and so on, and so on. Yeah. For you, that stopped. For you, you had defined yourself as a badass. You were a badass on the street, then you went through your training in record time, then you became a real badass on the battlefield. You were an yeah. active man. You defined yourself by how much you can probably push in the gym, how many sets of how many weights you were doing. It's because like you the... knew me back then. What the <laughs> hell, man? I was a cocky son of a bitch. I was, we, we had to, if infantry, and then even more than infantry, airborne infantry, yeah. we had to have this swagger. You had yeah. to have this, I'm the biggest dick in the room. I'm like, I'm, I'm the cockiest of the cockiest. You know, I was the guy that was going to the dance club and just be like, you, 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 let's go. 
and just like you had to have that. You had to, you had to, you know. And then, and then I think to be in a combat environment, you have to believe you're bulletproof. You have absolutely. To, absolutely. You know, it, it's different if you're a cook, a mechanic, a no. satellite repairman. Nothing against those jobs; they're important jobs. But to be a combat specialty, to be infantry, to be rangers, snipers, you have to have this thought of like I'm impenetrable, I'm untouchable. And, and, and when those bad things happen, when you see guys injured, when you see guys killed, yeah, you have to have a thick skin about it. You have to shrug it off. It's not a good feeling. And it's something that you'll end up dealing with years later. Um, but in that moment, you can't ever let the fear of, oh my God, somebody's trying to kill me at all times. You can't let that get into your head. Like you Absolutely. do have to have the small part that says like, Today's the day you could die because that keeps you sharp. It keeps you from getting complacent. But at the same time, you can never let that fear of like, oh my God, I'm literally in the worst place in the world with everyone hating me and wanting me to die um, because you just, you can't do your job then. So true, so true. You identify yourself with this action man figure. Um, how it sounds bizarre, and I'm, I'm trying to make a little bit lighter here, but ultimately, this is a persona that you develop, that you believe in, that you that you cultivate. That sure. is because this persona keeps you alive. The moment you move away from that persona, you actually increase your chances of not making it back. So no two ways around that. And you believe it, and you live it, and you breathe it, and then suddenly, a bullet comes and. You find yourself, I assume, back in Germany. Um, mm -hmm. That was a pretty much the uh, first uh, port of call after uh, being being wounded severely. Um, how long were you in Germany? How long were you in the? So from the date of my injury, um, I I got you know you put on the helicopter. You go straight back to your your little outpost where they performed emergency surgery to save my life. Yeah. From there, I was medically induced in a coma, ended up at Bagram, which is the main base in Afghanistan, yeah. there for about a day or two, waiting for a flight to Germany. Go back, ended up in uh, uh, a Landstuhl, Landstuhl right. in, in Germany at the regional medical center there. Was there for about five, six, seven days. The, right. Really what they told me was that, because typically that's a point where you could, in theory, be patched up, sent back, patched up, sent back to your unit, you know, sent back to Italy, wherever. I was told right out the gate, like, there's nothing we can do for you here. We are right. going to stabilize your body. We're going to put you in a full body cast, stabilize yeah. you. We need to send you back to the States because we can't do anything for you here. And so I was only there for about five, six days right. and then put on a transport back to the States to Washington, D.C., where uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center is the, the main hospital where I spent the next two years. Two years? Yeah. Fuck me. Yeah. Wow. It was, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it was, it was a tough time. It's about six days in the ICU uh, because I actually, funny story, I died when I got there. My heart just stopped. Um, I'll tell you I'll tell you, you arrogant, sunny bitch. Come on, they yeah. do all this work and then you just die. And I just, Come I was like, on. you know what, I give up. I'm done. Um, <laughs> so I was in the ICU for about six days. Uh, then I spent six months on the, the, the trauma ward, on the, yeah. the uh, orthopedic ward, where I, un I endured about 40-something-ish surgeries yeah. uh, to kind of piece me back together. 
died again uh, during that six months, brought me back, was too stubborn to die. And then, um, the, honestly, I should have been in the hospital longer, but what happened was at that time, we were getting so many wounded back every single day that it got to a critical point where they said, like, if you're ambulatory, if you can walk, there was a hotel next to the hospital yeah. and they would put you in, the, in that hotel that way you just can walk back and forth for your appointments and surgeries. So that was, that was around 2006, 2007? 2006, now? yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was Fallujah uh, kicking off around about that time. So yeah. yes, you guys got hammered out there. Oh yeah. So so uh, I, you know, in total, I was in the, the hospital for about two years before I was medically retired. But six months of that was as an inpatient in the hospital and then about a year and a half of recovery and, and surgeries and, and physical therapy, occupational therapy, things yeah. like that. Uh, outside, just living literally steps outside of the hospital. Um, I mean, yeah. your left your left arm was obliterated uh, from yeah. a bone point of view. Your right shoulder was in in little Completely pieces, uh, and here you are moving your arms around. That is a testament to a your perseverance and b to the skills of the team that worked at you. Absolutely. I give, I give the majority of the credit to the yeah. doctors, nurses, therapists, uh, staff at the hospital. When I, when I first got to the hospital and I, and I don't recommend this, but an army doctor, they don't, they don't, they don't mince words. So I said, Hey doc, like, wh what am I looking at? Like how, how bad am I? And he looked at my chart, he looked at me and he goes, well, there's a 80% uh, chance you're going to lose one of your arms and a 60% chance you're going to lose both your arms. And I was just like, well, shit. Okay, cool. Uh, thanks. You know, usually bedside manner means like, it, you're going to be great, man. You're going to, we got you. Like, no, they were like, this is, this is what we're looking at. Best case scenario. So I definitely did defeat the odds and beat the odds and, and um, had really honestly just amazing surgeons, amazing treatments. Um, there were a few experimental surgeries that they, 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 they basically told me like, look, this could help or it could do nothing. We're not really sure. We're just kind of winging it because my injuries were pretty severe. And um, I was very fortunate. Actually, one of my one of my treatments got put in a medical textbook because of just how groundbreaking it was. Um, so that's pretty cool. Oh, that's but yeah, it was, it was a wild time Fuck. for sure. Well, you're, you're making light of it now. And you, you speak very highly of the team and it's all beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I don't believe for a second that you were in that frame of mind when you were actually there. Not at all, not at all. Um, that was probably the darkest time at my life at that point, because little did I know I had a nice little mental break surprise coming up down the road. But at that moment, um, that was, you kind of hit the head, the, the nail on the head when you said that I was this cocky, I mean, the the biggest just mm, in the world at that moment. And in the blink of an eye, I couldn't scratch my nose. Mm. I couldn't wipe my ass. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. In fact, in those six months, I spent so much time in the bed that my legs atrophied. I had no lower body injuries, but I had to relearn how to walk. That's how long I stayed um, kind of just completely cast up and my legs just like, completely atrophied and I had to relearn to walk. Um, I 
was in a really bad place, um, physically, obviously, but also the, the mental toll to all of a sudden you can't, like I had to call for help if my nose itched. And, and to go from, you know, I was, I think I was 21 at the time, 22 at the time, the best physical specimen on earth to this baby, this, this incapable baby that could just cry and whine. And that was it. That's all I could do. Um, and to have people have to come clean me, I couldn't get up to use the toilet. Hmm. And so had to have people clean me. It was the most humiliating and also humbling and sobering experiences of my life at that point. And so it was a really hard time. I was, I was lucky in the sense that I had an experience where I was going through the, you know, the woe is me, my life is over, I'm, I'm ruined, I'm going to be this crippled being for the rest of my life, and no one's going to love me, and, and all these, like, why am I even here? What, you know, I, I was a big video game player, I still am, and I was like, oh my god, I'm never going to be able to play video games again, like, the, what kind of life am I going to live? And, you know, I had, I would sit there and just ruminate and just be just mm, every day, and uh, one day, this guy comes into my room, and he's in a wheelchair. He's in a, in a motorized wheelchair. Uh, he had lost both his legs, lost one arm, and the one arm that was left only had, like, pincers for fingers, and that's how he moved his little wheelchair. And this motorized wheelchair was completely pimped out. I'm talking spinner rims on the wheels, flags, boombox, stickers, like, very flashy. And this guy would go room to room and just talk and make people laugh. And like to the point where he would have to be forcibly removed because people were bursting their stitches. Like they were laughing so hard that they would burst stitches and like <laughs> the doctors would get pissed. But he would just do that every day. He would just go around and it struck me that like, who the fuck do I think I am? that here's a guy who obviously has it way worse. Even if I lost both my arms, I still got my legs. You know, and, and, and I, you know, like it just obviously had it worse than me and he could still smile and laugh and bring laughter and, 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 and just have this positive energy about him. And like, I just, I was like, I, I refused to really be that like woe is me anymore because I'm like this guy's living even though he has every reason to hate life he has every reason to be miserable and curse people out and and demand special treatment and no he did everything for himself and he he so independent and he was so full of life and love and that really got me through that part of um the physical recovery um and that gave me this this kind of attitude of like you know what I'm going to beat the odds I'm going to you know they told me I should do 1 hour of therapy a day and I would go 3 times for an hour each time so like I just I just developed this this I don't know I I kind of tackled it the way I did my training where I'm just like well I'm going to be the best I'm going to be the best at healing I'm going to be the best at physical therapy I'm just like that became this 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 I don't know this mantra this method in my head um, you know, I was, I was literally competing with the, with the guy on my left and the guy on my right in the hospital bed. Like, 
Like I'm gonna walk faster than you. I'm gonna I'm gonna be move my fingers sooner than you. And all these things like became part of it. Um, you know, and then in, in the mental stuff that that came a little later and, and um was a little trickier. But um, but yeah, during the, the physical stuff at, at first was was very difficult to kind of accept. Um and then just once I kind of put my mind that I was going to, you know, like if if they ended up amputating my arms, oh, so be it. And I'll, I'll get the lay arms and I'll learn how to use them and I'll, you know, do what I have to do. But um, I just, I just, yeah, you know, I just, I remember having that switch flip, just I'm, I'm going to do what I can, whatever I have control over, like that's what I'm going to focus on and, and go at it 110%. Whatever I've got control over. What a beautiful, beautiful caveat. That's right. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. That's yeah, so I love true. that. So true. Wow. What did you do two years when you couldn't use your hands for boredom? <laughs> I would have been out of my fucking mind. Yeah. What did you yeah. do? How did you keep yourself sane? <laughs> TV, <laughs> a lot of a lot of TV, really, uh, a lot of TV. Um, I, I was fortunate that after I would say after the first six months, you know, when when I finally made the move from living in the hospital to out of the hospital, I was starting to regain a lot of the use of my hand. They weren't like they weren't like I have today, where I'm you know I'm pretty good. Um, that was very limited my range of motion, my strength, my dexterity, things like that. But I could I could interact with certain things. So really, it was the first four months that were the most difficult. Where um, the first month was in and out of like, you know, a morphine coma. Like I was so drugged up from all the pain I was in, and in and out of surgery. I don't really even remember the first month, really. But I remember months two through four were were pretty boring. Um, a lot of a lot of TV, <laughs> a lot of a lot of TV. Um, and uh and yeah that just and then just talking to people and and um i remember just you know going to the cafeteria and just sitting around we used to play this game uh who's got it worse and we would start comparing <laughs> comparing scars comparing injuries comparing well like i lost my leg well i lost my hand well, I, that guy had his ear blown off and it was like yeah, so it's you know it was the things the same things we would do in combat where have these ridiculous conversations and would who would you rather you know, is it fuck, Mary kill? And, and, you know, if you had to do this, would you, and all these things, it just, did, we just did that in the hospital and, and kind of turned dark with, you know, who had the coolest prosthetic and, and, you know, uh, with the gnarliest scar, <laughs> things like that. So. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. That is, that is, that is the gallow humor. That is, that is uh, exactly. And it's only doctors can understand that or nurses. We all have got the same kind of, dark tinge to our humor yeah, <laughs> where, where other say, people just look around and think who the hell are you what what did you just say <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I tell people i'm like you know you get put you go through some super traumatic uh thing in your life and really the only two things you can do is laugh or cry like that's right. really that's really what it boils down to and so um i think people in our line of work lean more towards laughing about it <laughs> <laughs> agreed 100% agreed 
and uh, the, the more sordid the humor, the better, in all fairness, <laughs> at least that. <laughs> because you see so much shit, you see so mm -hmm. much trauma and suffering that sometimes you want to be so out there in your humor that, that oh my God, an enormous yeah. sane person is just shaking his or her head. Absolutely. And it is what it is. That is that is our survival. That is our our way of coping. And sometimes you need exactly that. And now mm -hmm. I live by that very man. God, where did money come from around that time? Was so veterans, veterans uh, looking after you, or for for luckily, you know, the military does a really good job in taking care of its wounded veterans. Um, yeah. We're very fortunate for that. So while I was still going through this recovery. I was still considered an active duty soldier. So I was getting my pay as if I was on the line working. Oh, um, nice, nice. Because you're still, you're still in the military. Now, on top of that, when you go through a traumatic injury like this, we have almost like life insurance policies. So if you, God forbid, you were able to, you were to die, like you have a, a document that says like, you know, give my money to my family and, and they'll get like a half a million dollars or something like this, crazy amount of money. Obviously never worth a, a life um but for my injuries there were actually there's there's a, a a formula that says depending on the level of your injury you get an x amount of dollar as in as a sorry <laughs> like sucks that you got blown up or whatever um but i think at the time i think i got like seventy five thousand dollars uh for my injuries and then again collected my regular pay up until 2007, when I officially medically retired. Um, and then from that point on, I collected retirement at a reduced rate of what my active duty pay is. It's based on your, your grade, uh, your, your time in service, all the different, you know, your injuries and things like that. And then obviously as a disabled veteran, you know, I collect money, uh, you know, for my disability um, as well. So we're fortunate that, you know, it, it paid the bills. No one's living in the lap of luxury for sure. Um, but um, it definitely, you know, paid the bills for a good while. How, I mean, that was a time, 2005, 2006, 2007, whilst shell shock was known for at least 90 years, whilst the impact of battle and combat and extreme situations on the mind was accepted, but it, it was still not really so well managed, was it? We would love to say, oh, yes, the 2000s, we're living in a modern world and we understand and we deal with it. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Uh, certainly from a, from a medical point of view, unfortunately, that is not true. There were lessons learned from various conflicts, but they were not necessarily uh, interchanged and were not necessarily implemented into the active management. For example, I was, I was talking yesterday about uh, in, in an interview with someone and I uh, brought up the Falkland War where the, the British were fighting the Argentines. Short war uh, in the 80s. But a lot of trauma, a lot of uh, the, the English were very, yeah, there were a lot of uh, damage was done to the people, mm -hmm. to, the, to the soldiers as well as mentally. And some of the soldiers were repatriated via aeroplane. So within 48 hours, they were back in the UK. And some of the other guys, they ended up on the ship traveling slowly back. 
the amount of PTSD uh, in the two groups was staggering that the, those guys who could actually debrief and deal with the whole shit uh, in their own time over a period of two, three weeks that it took to get back to the UK on a ship. That was such a valuable, valuable thing. Yet lessons like that, I don't think, were so much accepted by any leadership, uh, military leadership around the world. So was there, was there a budding kind of emotional support system there around about that time? Or was there, again, did people have to make it up as they went and rely on the, the goodwill of that? that guy on with his spinning wheels and things like that. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, man, you're, you're, you're so dialed in. Most people don't understand. Um, but yeah, in that time, 2003, 2004, 2005, even up to 2007, the, the mental wounds, the invisible, wounds, the invisible scars that we like to call them really weren't understood at the depth that they are today. Um, and I can remember, you know, guys cracking, guys kind of having those breaks and we're just like, hey, man, suck it up, drive on. Like, you're, you're fine. You know, drink some water. You'll be good. Um, and like you said, there are, you know, history lessons. And I remember you, we'd come back from trainings or come back from deployments and you had to fill out documents like, do you want to kill yourself? And you're like, uh, no. <laughs> like, and it, and it was almost ridiculous in the nature of it like do you think about killing other people and you're like uh no um and 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 honestly we were even kind of told by our leadership like you fucking answer no to everything on that damn list like yeah, exactly. we were kind of like briefed on like you're like you don't you don't fucking say something's wrong you know we handle that internally blah 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 mm -hmm. um and so it wasn't understood and i remember in walter reed and when i was there you know guys were having tough times and guys were abusing the pills they were on and guys were mixing alcohol with the pills they were on. And we had guys die in the hotel because, you know, A, there wasn't really good leadership at that time. There was like, again, the guys were just flooding in, flooding in and, and, you know, one or two commanders watching over everybody. It's impossible. Hundreds of people. And so, you know, you get guys that were that were on their painkillers and start drinking and, you know, dealing with the stuff that they're dealing with and, and, and they die like in the hotel. Um, and so but even then, the, the, the focus, as it should have been, the focus was so much on the physical being because it's easy. It's easy to do an X-ray. It's easy to do a CAT scan or a CT scan and see what's wrong and fix it. And so that's where the focus was. And I remember with me all the focus was on my physical being to the point that like, I remember getting it like, Oh, go to this office at 9am. And I, and I go to the office and they're like, here, sign this. But I'm like, oh, okay, cool. What's this? She goes, you're now a civilian. Like those are your retirement papers. I was like, wait, what? Like I, I wouldn't even like given, you know, and again, it's much better now. There's it's much better system now. But at that time it was such a wild West uh, atmosphere where they were just trying to figure it out. And I literally remember just signing a paper and they're like, all right, get your shit and you're good. You're done. You go home and collect your retirement. You're like, it's like, wait a minute. I don't think I'm ready to be back in the civilian. Like, I'm not ready for this. Um, and 
for me personally, and I know everybody's struggles with PTSD and, and kind of the, the mental stuff, it's, I mean, it's such a spectrum. Because even at that time, going through what I went through, I still didn't under, understand PTSD. And for years I didn't. For me, it's what the media will talk about and like these, these homicidal maniacs that now go on killing sprees and these guys who get blackout drunk or, or beat their wives, like that's PTSD. And, I, and that is a part of the spectrum. That is absolutely one side of the spectrum. And I saw it. I saw guys that I served with who didn't get injured, who just came back and couldn't handle and would get blackout drunk and put their fists through walls and get into fights and things like that. And I would go, that's PTSD. Because that's all, like, that's all I knew. And for years, I struggled. And, and honestly, it, got, it started to get worse and worse and worse. I was pulling away from people. I was isolating. I was depressed. I was having nightmares. I was that guy doing patrols. And like, I bought this house in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And like, nearest neighbor was like a mile away. And I'm still doing 3 a.m. patrols in my house as if to expect attacks at any moment. But to me, that was all normal. And, and literally patrols. You you were literally. literally. And why did you say three o'clock? Just out of intrigue. Just in the middle of the night, like I, I it would be. Did you wake up three o'clock? Did you wake up three o'clock like clockwork? And uh, sometimes, sometimes yeah. yes. Sometimes it was. I just couldn't sleep. I would yeah. just. So I'd be up still at three a.m. Just right. walking around and doing things, checking the door that I locked it for the six hundredth time. Mm. Um, you know, making sure you know every just these things that to me were normal. They were, uh, this was just, you know, and I, I, the excuses are just part of my training. I'm just, I'm just being safe. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just doing all things. You you build this construct in your mind, isn't it? You, you, you sort of, you, you normalize it. Hey, it's mm-hmm. your, it's, it's, I watch my six. I, I, that is, that is normal. That's good yeah. practice, etc. Yeah. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. God. Fucking three mm-hmm. o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, like yeah. clockwork. For me, it was three, really, four o'clock all the time. For many, many, many months, years, four o'clock, bing, wide away. Yep. Uh, and you remember absolutely every bloody wrong thing that you did in your life at four o'clock absolutely. in the morning. <laughs> it, all, it all plays like a horrible, horrible movie Isn't right it? in front of your eyes. Um, and yeah, and so it was, it was, it really, I didn't know. And I, and I, pulled myself and and luckily the world was starting to get better in understanding these things and programs and for for wounded veterans these great programs are starting to be developed and but i was so far removed i i isolate you know again coming from a kid from new york city i now bought a house in the the pennsylvania wilderness and just out in the mountains like literally bears and turkeys and deer running around my property and i just wanted to be left alone and and I'm fine. I don't have PTSD. I'm fine. I just don't like to talk to people. I don't want to look at people. I don't want them to look at me. I don't want to leave my house. There were, there were weeks. And at this point I was married with my wife who God bless her. She's saved my life so many times. Um, But there were weeks that I wouldn't step foot out my house. I just, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't find the will to engage the outside world. I built this cocoon safety bubble around myself and I couldn't get out of it. And, you know, she, if not for my wife, I'd be dead. I'd be, they'd find my body at some point because, you know, she'd buy the food and she'd cook for me and, and, and make sure that I was taking a shower and just taking care of myself because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it for myself at that time. 
And, and I still couldn't see that I needed help. I still couldn't see it. And I was just very, very fortunate that the right people came into my life at the right time and, and right organizations got involved that I could start to realize I needed help and, and took one guy really just sitting me down and going like, you need help um, and explaining to me why, you know, and, and he goes, you have PTSD. I'm like, no, I don't. Do you have nightmares? Yeah, of course I have nightmares. I saw dead bodies and I saw things that, you know, do you have sleepless night? Yeah. Do you say, no, I did it. Yeah. Like the checklist goes out and he's like, all that's PTSD. Like that's all symptoms of PTSD. And then going like, Oh, okay. Maybe I need help. You know? Well, the last time I looked, uh, people are not hiking through the Pennsylvania mountains to try to find people like you. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the army is still not going this far. So how the hell did they find you or how, Again, let me guess. How, what did your wife get up to to find <laughs> to find those sources? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, I was I was very fortunate. So I guess while I was in the hospital, um, there was an organization called Wounded Warrior Project, mm. and they 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 kind of capture people's information as they're going through, and they would just like they have all these programs. I, I didn't want anything to do with them, but one of the things they would do is they they would call you on your birthday. And just say like, "Hey, man, happy birthday! How's it going? Whatever." And so one day they called me, and my wife happened to be sitting next to me, and they're like, "Hey, you know, happy birthday! How's it going? How you doing?" I'm like, "I'm fine." And she's like, mm. "And they're like, and 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 she's and, and you know, and they're like, oh, you know, if you if you're interested, we do all these different events." And then I'm like, "Nah, I'm good." And she's, mm. and then I'm like, "What?" And she's like, "Well, ask them what they do." And so I was like, "Well, okay, what kind of stuff are you doing?" Like. But what are you into? And I was like, oh, one of the things I'm into is football. Love football. And um, American football. And uh, she, you know, they're like, oh, uh, you know, who's your big fan? I'm like, well, I'm from New York. I love the Giants. That's my team. And they're like, hey, well, you know, we actually have a, we, we get a suite every once in a while at the games. And you, know, you get to, you know, watch the game and eat and just kind of get together with people. And I was like, oh. I was like, I, I grew up a poor kid. Like, I'd never actually even been to a game. Like I'd watch it on TV, but I'd never actually been to a game, let alone like not just in the stadium, but in a suite. It's a it's a box, <laughs> private, you know, food, catered, drinks and things. And and I and part of it in my head was like the idea of being in a crowd was terrifying. But like, okay, if we're in a box, you know, it's kind of contained and I get to watch the game. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I could do that. And then it was like two hours from my house, but um what else was I doing? Um, and so, so yeah, so I went to a game and, and I was like, I had a, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't really do anything, but I, I enjoyed it and whatnot. And so, um, I just once in a while started doing more things like that. And, and kind of the more I got out, the more I started to realize, Hey, I wasn't alone. That was kind of a big thing was feeling alone and realizing other people are struggling the same way I was. And then a couple events later, I met the guy that kind of changed my life, uh, Ed, who, became my mentor and and he could see I was struggling and he was the first guy that really kind of got in my face about it um because everybody's oh you good you you okay yeah you're like it, it's like you're good right you're you're okay they're like oh yeah yeah no I'm fine and and he was the first guy that came out to me he's like it's like man you don't look good like, you don't look good and I was like no I'm fine he's like no man you like you had bags in your eyes he's like you don't look like you're sleeping I'm like yeah who sleeps <laughs> like in the movies, people sleep. We don't. Nobody really does that. Like, no, you should be sleeping. 
Um, and uh, he had a service dog, which is like that, that kind of uh, broke through the shell because I'm like, it was a fucking cute dog and such a good dog <laughs> and so well behaved. And I loved playing with the dog and he kind of used that against me. It was my weakness. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he kind of talked me into realizing that I just, I needed some help and, and I wasn't, wasn't doing good. And, you know, with his advice, I, I started speaking more and, and opening up more and getting therapy and counseling and seeing the docs and the, sink, the shrinks that I should be seeing. And, um, you know, he, he, he just kind of took me under his wing and um, he saw that you I was hurt. Yeah. Which and, time, um, time was, I mean, you were 2007, right about that. Right. You, so, yes. Yeah. So I met, I met Ed, uh, it was like the end of 2009, just, just about 2010. So it was about three years, shit. Uh, give or take from when I had, when I had left the service. And um, let me tell you really just in the nick of time, because it, I never, you know, you never joke, obviously, about taking your own life and things like that. But there was, and I never had that thought. I now, be honest, I never had the thought that I wanted to end my life. But I was little by little starting to feel that, like, what kind of life was I living? And I really feel like I was on that the train to that thought. I was on the on the path to that thought because I was starting to feel like I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm not worth anything. I'm just wasting people's energy like my wife is taking care of me i'm just wasting her life um and so while i never did have that thought i really do feel that had i not gotten together with ed and he had not become my mentor and my friend and and you know the programs that i found i really feel like i was ever so closely getting to that point of having that as a real thought that why am i what am i even doing here why why should i be here um and so i was very fortunate to never to never get to that point um but yeah, and, and and at that point, my life really changed. And it wasn't definitely not an overnight thing, uh, uh, mental health, things like that. It's not a simple fix. Um, but but once I took on once I took on that challenge, the same way I took on my physical recovery, that okay, I'm gonna be the best at mental health. I'm gonna be the guy that talks about his problems the most and is as honest and open as he can be. And once I kind of took that methodology and placed it towards my mental health, then that's, you know, over years, that's when I begin to really see a, a, a growth. Whilst I can't wait that COVID is finished and that I can actually meet you one day in person, you are really an excuse I, I don't really want to see you. I want to see your wife. I want to see that bloody Mother Teresa. This, 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 I don't know what being has got the patience to live with you from cocky bastard to poor me, poor me, poor me, another one to now the new you. Yeah, that is it. When did you meet her? When did you? Uh, what's I, her I, name? Come on, what's her I name? No, you're right. No, Jenny. 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 Uh, not not short for Jennifer. Actually, Jenny. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I was very fortunate. I I met her while I was in the hospital recovering. Funny enough, um, I <laughs> it's so me the way I met her in that um, it was my first time leaving the hot like going out into public. Yeah. Um, my doctors told me that I could go for a short walk, you know, around the premises to, to, you know, get some exercise and everything. So I jumped in a cab and went to the mall, uh, which was miles and miles away. And um, yeah, I, I went to a CD store. It was back 
when CDs were a thing. Um, so I went to a CD store to get some music. And when I walked in, I saw her right away. And I think, and she was gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous woman. And I think the only reason I had the confidence at that point uh, to talk to her is because I was on a lot of painkillers, a lot of painkillers. And so I was high out of my mind to, I don't, I don't think I would have ever walked up to her and talked to her. Maybe when I was like at my physical peak, if I back when I had the, when I had the stuff, um, I might've took a shot, but um, in my state where I literally, at that point I had one arm in a cast one arm in a sling. I had went from 200 pounds of solid muscle. I was about 125 of just bones and, and just, I look like death. Um, and so I just walked over to her and I, to this day, my opening line was, so do you come here often? That was kind of the, that was the opening gambit to that conversation. And it was, was not well just looked at you and thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, pretty much. Um, so no, she she she's been my rock through it all. And, and kind of like you said, it, she's seen me. I mean, at my worst, uh, she she jokes about the only reason she even kind of gave me the time of day is because I was like a wounded puppy dog, and she felt bad for me, and that's why she even gave me the time of day to talk to me. Um, and so you know, she, you know, once we started seeing each other and and you know, emailing and calling and. She would visit me in the hospital and she would just sit there for hours and listen to me and you know, watch and spend time with me. And she saw me through like the absolute worst, absolute worst. Uh, within months, I married her because I knew, you know, I, I, I dated plenty of women, plenty of women in my years. And she was just the first person that was just, had, she had the biggest heart I'd ever met and, and, was only concerned about me. And, and I, I'll be honest, I kind of treated her badly in the beginning. Um, I, again, was going through that really dark period where I didn't value, I didn't have value of myself. And so I really questioned why was she even spending time with me? Like, what's wrong with you that you're choosing to spend time with me? And just, I was very angry, obviously, about a lot of different things. Um, so I never, I never treated her bad. Like I never said bad things or anything, but I just, I was very aloof about the whole thing. Like I didn't take it. I, I could tell she was just interested in me because like, Oh, here's this, you know, this hero and this wounded veteran. And so I never felt like she really was into me and it just, all these psychological things I was doing to myself. And, and finally, after a couple of weeks, couple of months, she, she sat me down she goes, look, I really like you, but you're a dick. And if you, really want to be with me if you really want this to be something I need you to meet me halfway you know like I I, like I wouldn't like she would visit me but I would never go visit her like I would never go to her job I would never would never call her on the phone if we were going to talk she was going to call me and it was just it was it, it was me it was definitely my fault this was all me just being in my own head being a dick and, and being you know bummer myself but at that moment I realized she was such a great girl and that I definitely didn't want to lose her. And so I, I made a bunch of changes, personal changes. And just, I was like, all right, I can, I'll call you and I'll visit you and your family can meet me and things like that. Like her friends thought they, she, she was making me up. She could, they, they didn't believe I existed because, you know, I, I wouldn't call her. I wouldn't visit her. I wouldn't do anything. And so, um, 
yeah, I became more of a part of her life. And, and uh, a couple of months later, we we're married. And, and we've been together now. My God, we got married in 2006. So we've been together been together 15-ish years and married about 14 years. And we have a three-year-old now. So uh, she's a, a wild ride. for punishment. First, <laughs> first, she has got you as a puppy dog. Then she goes yeah. with you to, to the Pennsylvanian wilderness. Yep. <laughs> Unless she likes turkeys really a lot. Yeah, and really. that speaks volumes for her feelings. She's a to beach you. girl. She's a beach girl. So to go to the middle of Pennsylvania, far from any water uh, <laughs> or sand, you know, yeah, she... she yeah. I, I put her through so much hell. I owe her so much in my life. And, and like, all I want to do is make her happy. And um, <laughs> yeah, it just, it's, I'm very lucky. Very, very, very lucky. And I guess she must have seen that. She must have seen the potential in you. And she must have seen through all the bravado, through all the bullshit facade there, she must have seen something in you that no one else could see or that you didn't let anyone else see. Yeah. I didn't see it so, in myself either. So, yeah. That's right. true. So that was around about 2010 now, um, ballpark figure. Mm -hmm. But you're, you started healing. You started getting your shit together. But you were still not really doing so much there. The guy I'm talking to now is a very different guy than 2010. No two ways around it. Absolutely. What happened in between? How the hell did the next years change for you to be CQ, the CQ that we in a short while get to know what the hell yeah. you're up to now? But <laughs> what happened? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Yeah, a lot of a lot of little things that equaled a lot of big things, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, at that time, I started getting out more, being a participating more in life, um, wanting to be involved more, uh, seeing you know, getting therapy, taking medication, and you know, really trying to get out. Um, a big change came when um, I saw how good Ed was able to talk about his trauma and talk about things. And he, he'd seen some really bad things. And I, I couldn't understood how he could just share that with anybody. Like I was just starting to share it with like shrinks and things like that. But like he would just eat a guy off the street and then start talking about it. And I, I couldn't he was an enigma to me, like this puzzle I had to figure out. And he told me one day that, you know, it's all this stuff that we carry, this emotional baggage. It's like, it's like physical baggage is a weight that you carry. And the more that you can talk about it and share it with other people, you're literally handing them that bag and saying, Hey, can you help me carry this? And that takes the weight off of you. And, and I called bullshit. First of all, <laughs> like that's ridiculous. But it sounds like corny bullshit yeah. mumbo jumbo, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Some psychosomatic nonsense. But yeah. I, said, I said, okay, I'll call your bluff. I call bullshit. I'll call your bluff. I'm gonna start opening up. And I started very slowly, very little things. And fuck me, he was right. <laughs> like the more I would open up and the more I would share, the the less that burden became, the lighter that weight became. And so 
I just started taking more opportunities to share my story and, and to talk and connect with other guys. And, and then I got to a point within a year or two where I, I, I definitely not like Ed, but I was getting closer where I started to see those signs in other people. I would go to an event, a gathering of, of veterans, and, and I could see that guy that was sitting on the, against the wall and, you know, back against the wall and then facing it. And I would just go up to them and I would start talking like, Hey man, everything good. Like you're good. You know, that's right. And I would start connecting and, and in, in healing, or I shouldn't say that I was healing them, but in connecting with them, it was almost like healing a part of myself and like seeing, a, seeing a piece of me there and, and, and trying to heal them to heal me. And it just, I got, I got to a, a pretty good place. And so this is about 2012. And in that time, I realized that all this I was doing was great. And I, I got to travel the world and I started doing these different events and I started picking up hobbies. I learned to play golf and I learned to play racquetball and I, I, I got my scuba diving license. And I just, I started kind of tackling the world and every opportunity that would come to me, I would say, yes, like, Hey, you know, we're taking a bunch of veterans, uh, literally to go get their scuba diving license. Yes, I'll do it. And hey, we're giving out you know free golf lessons. So yes, I'll do it. I ended up in Israel uh, because of part of a wounded veteran exchange program. But they're like, hey, we're going to take some veterans, and they're coming to the states, and we're going to send some of ours over there. I was like, yes. Next thing I know, I'm in Israel. Um, which, funny enough, I was in I was in Tel Aviv, Israel, and the guy goes, "Do you see this road right here? Yeah. Because if you get on this road and drive eight hours in that direction, you're in Baghdad, Iraq, and that was a chosen. I'm way too close." Way too good. Um, but, you know, I, I got to do more of these things and it really all was part of that healing process. Um, and then, and like I said, in 2012, I got to this point where I realized the piece that was missing was kind of what we talked about earlier, that I, I'd always worked. I'd always been this hardworking guy and that was a piece of me that was missing. And so I had this kind of epiphany that like, maybe I should go back to work. Like, I, yes, I'm this disabled veteran, and yes, I'm this whatever, but I could still contribute. I could still do things. So we don't have to live paycheck to paycheck of my retirement. Like, maybe I can go out and make money. And obviously, I, I did the research first. Like, would I lose my benefits if I go back to work? And I sorted all that out. And yes, you lose, like, you know, Social Security and things like that. But, you know, depending on the job you take, you know, you make more money than what you're losing, technically. So... I, I took a lot of time to figure out the right job would be for me. And, and um, I found a, a very great program that, again, I, I had no really post high school education. My, my military education involved bullets and explosions and jumping out of airplanes. So career opportunities didn't seem very wide for me. Um, but I found a great program that took disabled veterans and taught them a career in the IT field and learning you know, stuff in IT and, and software development and things like that. And so I, I took a chance. I took a chance and I had to relocate. And God bless my wife for being so okay with things. Uh, but we really relocated to Maryland. And I took part in this, this training program. It was a three-year intensive training program. And, and But they said, like, if you complete it, you're guaranteed a job in the federal government and, you know, lots of benefits and things like that. And so 2013, I took that job and, and I'm still doing it today. But that was kind of a big piece of the puzzle was, was finding something that I could, I could contribute, I can do. Like I'm, I'm, I'm part of the solution, right? I'm part of the populace. I'm working. 
Um, and that helped me also at a time in the recommendation of Ed, I, I got a service dog. I got a service dog and that helped me a large portion in um, the social aspect. I was still having social anxiety. I was still having trouble getting into the community and doing these things. So getting that service dog was, was a piece of that, being part of that. Um, and then, you know, more, more pieces of the puzzle started falling into place when, you know, there was this, this peer mentoring program where they were like, hey, we'll partner you with other guys that are struggling and you guys can work together. And so I got to, I got to train as like, I got certified as a peer mentor, like, you know, how to engage and how to talk and learning mm -hmm. the things that I was doing just kind of naturally and following the example of Ed, uh, but learning how to do it properly <laughs> and doing it, you know, with, with an actual training method behind it. Um, and then that rolled into peer support groups. I created two, I, I first joined a few peer support groups and learning how to be part of a group and, and, and you know, find a family uh, that, that's kind of like you and the disabled veteran part of it. And eventually I, I created one and it got super successful. I did that for three years and then created a second one in a different area. And that's been rolling well. So like all these little pieces started, you know, equaling, the greater change in me and, and being, and honestly getting to a point in my life where I feel like I'm better now as a person than I was before my injury. So not just getting back to that point, but surpassing it by a large margin. And so again, doing all that stuff. And then finally, I'm like, okay, now I've been giving of myself in my work and giving of myself in my family and giving of myself in these peer support groups and these mentoring ships. Then I, I then it became a thing of like okay now I need to do something for myself like what do I want to do, and uh, I found this program that taught veterans stand up comedy, and I think you know I've always been a fan of comedy I've uh, always loved comedy oh, I've always made love making people laugh I, it's always been a, a part of who I was and I lost it for a long time, you know I was always the class clown in in combat I was the one making silly faces and posing like I have pictures that I could show you that are just ridiculous because I love making people laugh and then to lose that for so long and being this dark gloomy struggling guy um I thought wow what a great opportunity and really if I'm honest the reason I took the stand-up comedy class is because you know still struggling with social anxiety I felt like this was a challenge this was a thing to literally put myself in the spotlight have people look at me and me the challenge to make them laugh and, and in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to do the program. There's a little graduation show you do. And then I'm going to cross that off the bucket list. I did that and move on. But in doing the class and in doing the training and doing the performance, I fell in love with it. I really had a lot of fun. I enjoyed the, the challenge of writing material, performing it, making people laugh and entertaining people, taking some of the struggles that I've gone through and controlling the narrative and finding the funny in it and making people laugh with that. That was such a great healing thing that I stayed with it. I started doing open mics and I got to perform in like the DC improv and Gotham in New York city and all these places. I, I performed comedy for former president Jimmy Carter and his wife. And I got to do that in this private little venue. And um, you know, like it just, again, saying yes to those opportunities. And so, and then eventually comedy kind of led me to podcasting and, and doing a radio show. So it's, it's all connected. It's all one big bowl of spaghetti where everything's connected to everything. 
but um but yeah it's a lot of little things that created a bigger change <laughs> wow 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 so you have gone through such a journey and jenny was there on your side how what support did she get where did she draw her support her 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 sanity from that's i mean that's a great question um for so long she you know i didn't even i didn't even think i didn't even think why or how she's one of nine children she's the second oldest but she has a very large family um and they are an incredible source of support for her they wow. literally no matter where they are in the world or the country um they talk daily i mean uh, text message chains and facebook chains and you know even before facebook was really big thing it was phone calls every day every couple hours like um so she's got a great support system with her family and i think she's at her best when she's helping others and so me being the project for so long she she kind of put all of herself into it um and then and then finding kind of again finding what she needed what was her healing was she got into running and when i was going through a lot of my changes and starting because again I, the, her focus was so much on keeping me alive and keeping me sane for so long that she didn't get to do things for herself and finally when i started to get into a better place realizing okay now she needs to take care of herself too and um so she found a passion for running she'd never really done it before and then next thing you know she's running 5ks and 10ks and half marathons and uh, now she has a collection of medals and trophies and things that she's very proud of um so it's very physically fit and, and using you know her her escape is is the gym is working out being physically fit and, and of course a glass of wine gotta have a glass of wine at the end of the day um but um but yeah no she's she's now now again we're in such a good place because we've developed friendships and that that support she's working full-time now so she has a job she loves and she's passionate about you know work colleagues and, and, and you know friends and neighbors and so we built a social circle and, and these things that we for years we didn't have for years it was just me and her and and this uphill battle and um you know my family's never really been involved and her family has always lived far away and so it really was just us and um you know we we together we've come a long way and it hasn't been easy there have been a lot of rough patches and we've learned we've learned how to support each other um over the years we've developed almost like kind of like code words so if you know when i'm when I'm having a down day, when I'm having a day that I just rolling out of bed, I know like, oh, this is not going to be good. You know, she'll, she'll look at me and she's like, hey, are you feeling blue? And I'll have to like self-check and go like, yeah, you know, yeah, I think I'm, 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 I'm real blue right now. And so, you know, she'll ask, well, what can I do? And sometimes I, it's just me. I have to go like, maybe I just need a hug. Like, just give me some physical contact or some just, you know, whatever. And then some days it's just like, I'm, I appreciate it. I'm good. I just need, I just need space. I just need time to process what I'm going through. Um, Cause sometimes we have to allow ourselves that we have to check in and, and allow ourselves. We're not always going to be happy. The, the, the media, Facebook generate, like it's all fake. Like you have to be honest with yourself. And sometimes you're just not going to have a good day. You know, my, my wife will joke. She's like, Oh, you're menstruating. You know, like she'll, she'll, she'll oh. play it out. Ouch. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, she'll, she'll poke fun because she knows again, as a comedian, like, that's what we do. We crib each other. Um, and so, you know, 
but but she's always my champion. She's always my support. When I tell her like I, no, I'm I'm, and, and one part of it too is sometimes you you cross the line, you snap when you shouldn't have, and and as I have to say like I'm sorry. Look, I apologize. What I said yesterday, I was just not in a good place, and that's my bad. And I have to I have to own up to that. I have to own up to that as the man. I have to own up to my own <laughs> when I when I know I crossed the line. But you know she's she's great, and and we you know it's. Yeah, she's she's been there for me for so long that that yeah, I I owe it to her to be the the best the best husband I can be, the best father I can be, you know, the best friend I can be. So, yeah. That makes two of us. That's exactly the same the same attitude I have got towards the gem of Lisa that is my wife and that has been there for me when she should have really walked away. <laughs> or when I would have expected any sane person to walk away. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so cheers to to the women out there and to the partners out there, regardless of chromosomal status, um, who yep. are not giving up on on nut jobs like CQ and me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys, you guys rock. That's all I can say. Absolutely. <laughs> and hopefully, and hopefully. Both CQ and I are examples of the fact that you can turn around and that even the darkest darkness can still grow a glimmer of hope, can still grow a glimmer of light. And that if you just add a little glimmer, some, some oxygen and the right nutrition and suddenly suddenly a little flame bursts out and suddenly that flame turns into a a big fire that then gives birth to a phoenix and out comes this this new guy this new or new girl for that matter exactly and there's this this new person coming out and in your case it's the stand-up comedian you would have never believed that in a million years. Had I told you at the age of 20, one day you're gonna rock as a comedian. You would have said, yeah, right, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have no way what no way to know what happens to you. And life is so dynamic, there is nothing guaranteed. You, there is no longer the situation that you get into a job and you work 50 years and then you get your golden watch and then you have got your picket fence at home. Nah, nah. Life is constantly changing and we have to adapt and change and overcome. That is our duty as, as, as successful human beings. And that applies for partnerships, for relationships, for... Uh, Everything, really, absolutely everything. So it is the 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 key to to you succeeding out there is to start loving yourself. The 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 moment that CQ found out that there is actually something to be proud of again and to look in the mirror and, and truly hand on heart say, I can do that, I can make that. And let's 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 do x that is the moment when you start succeeding and that is the moment when suddenly people turn around and think yes you have been a smart ass you have been an asshole i couldn't stand you but look what you're doing now wow what the hell yeah. and guys such a transformation is sexy 
Okay, it doesn't matter if you're if half an arm is hanging off, and in your case, nah, no, 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 no. That is that is actually that is to to show to show to the outside world your emotions and what you have overcome makes you a very unique person. It makes you one of the few people that others actually look truly up to, because it is not so common that people develop the balls and the backbone to do that. It takes a man and a woman to really hit rock bottom and then to waller a bit in a misery and have the vomit on the t-shirt and then slowly but surely develop the, the new foundations. And whatever then happens on these foundations, this is a good sign uh, because every man is different, every woman is different. We all find passion and life and joy in surroundings that we didn't think possible. Would I have believed that I sit here talking to fantastic guests out there in the hope that we can, can be there to infuse and to, to change the lives of those that listen to us? I would have, I would have looked at you as if you had you lost your marbles. But here I am, and I'm finding a fulfillment that I that I couldn't have imagined a few years ago. So, guys, don't give up. Don't give up. Look at, at CQ. You know, if he can do it, come on, come on. Honestly, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> amen to that. He says, <laughs> "Oh, CQ, wow." So you're, you're still very involved now. So you're doing your stand-up comedy. You're a radio host. Tell us about your radio show because people want to hear more about you. I mean, you've, you've opened right. up this so much. Tell me about, tell me where can people listen and tune in and, and talk bullshit with you? Absolutely. Well, first, is the, you know, got to have the merchandising, right? So this is, this is the show, <laughs> Pop Culture Warrior. Yeah. Um, no, so, so the show is Pop Culture Warrior. We're live. We're live. We do a live show Tuesday nights, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern U.S. Um, and we do it for about two hours. Most times it's just me talking about the latest news in movies, TV, video games, comic book, toys, uh, just fun stuff. You know, there's so much darkness in the world today. There's so much drama in the world today. I wanted to do a show that was fun to talk about. We can be silly. We can you know, talk about uh, Marvel superhero movies and, and things like that and just have a good time. And uh, occasionally we'll have guests. Like I actually think like the next, my God, I think the next month and a half, I'm booked solid with guests, um, directors, actors, writers, artists, Ooh. anybody that's in the entertainment industry. Like I, I find it fascinating. I want to talk about what is it like on set? What is it? How do you get your creation, uh, your ideas for making a video game? You know, all these things that, behind the scenes that we don't get to see in the entertainment industry. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Mixer, Twitter, uh, YouTube, uh, pretty much anywhere you see video and audio, um, as well as once the show is over, it gets pushed out as a podcast. So if you just want to hear the audio, you can find us wherever podcasts are found. The easiest way to find us is if you search WTF Nation Radio. That's the the kind of the suite of shows, the family of shows. Um, so I'm the Tuesday night show, but we have you know Monday edition, Sergeant's Time, uh, Kicking It with Cause, a bunch of other shows. Um, 
but yeah, so search WTF Nation Radio. The the show has its own Facebook page, facebook.com slash popculturewarrior. And that's just a super engaging place where, you know, we talk nerdy stuff. I post stuff that's fun, do little challenges. I do exclusive videos. Um, if you like the Facebook page, every 250 likes I get on the page, I do a big mystery box giveaway. So just just all you got to do is like the page. You're randomly entered to win. Uh, we, we sent out our first big winner package and he loved it. It had autographed memorabilia and toys and comic books and all types of fun stuff. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. I, I enjoy it. I look forward to having the conversation. I have a co-host and um, you know, I guess we take, we, we have a, a phone number. So we take live callers. If you want to call in live to the show, I want to hear your opinions. Um, and, and like I said, the Facebook way, the Facebook page, just kind of a way to, keep the show going right like it's it's your instant access to me at all times and what i'm thinking about or what i'm excited about in pop culture and then um the show is just alive it's just this it's just this box me talking to your face and um it's a lot of fun it just we just i try to make it fun and um you know it's a it's an escape for for the for the normal world and normal life so yeah that's that's my pitch that's my pitch to you Oh, it's brilliant. Brilliant. So I'll, I'll make sure that I'm in the draw for the 250 there. Um, so <laughs> no, brilliant, man. Brilliant. CQ, I mean, you, you are, you humbled me. You, you, your journey uh, has been unique, yet there are so many others out there, so many veterans out there. And it's brilliant to hear that that you're part of that community that is helping others, because that is certainly a community that is so much needed out there. And I think at least there is now a certain structure in place and a more a better acceptance in place as far as soldiers is concerned. And we are talking now United States. I do not know what the equivalent in, in let's say, Pakistan is or in, in Russia or, or in South America. I doubt very much that, that the same lessons have been learned. I think they will be decades behind uh, just based upon the nature that that they have not had to deal with thousands of injured soldiers and had to learn the hard lessons. So it's it's maybe a good thing that that happened to the United States that you guys got involved in, in two wars, at least from the management of mental health issues of soldiers. Having said that, guys out there, if if you look at PTSD, PTSD is a weird thing that raises its ugly head in response to situations where you felt that your life was threatened. I'm no soldier. I was at the receiving end of gang warfare or gang. They wanted to have fun. Yeah. And I was the, the victim of their fun. Well, thank you very much. The PTSD that arose from that wasn't very pretty. Uh, rape, sexual abuse can lead to PTSD. We know that major road traffic accidents, if you're a victim of that, chances one in three that you develop PTSD. And it can hide itself like a freaking chameleon. 
So if you if you recognize yourself in some of the symptoms that CQ has mentioned, uh, the hypervigilance, the constantly being on edge, the constantly looking around, to a certain degree that is good because you want to be aware of your of your environment, just not to that high pitch that PTSD guys are are there. You want to have a nice, calm, relaxed. You want to know what's going on around you, okay? Sure. But you certainly don't want to be going about like nuts and that's that's what ptsd is the three o'clock four o'clock in the morning waking up no guys no guys unless your neighbor plays trombone at four o'clock in the morning regularly you probably shouldn't wake up at four o'clock and you certainly shouldn't wake up and then remember everything that you ever did wrong i mean you remember 32 years ago when you talked really funny to that girl and you suddenly feel it in a visceral visceral m- moment as as if someone hits you in the, into the gut that kind of feeling that's not normal okay so it's these kind of things so if you recognize yourself maybe time to explore it a bit maybe time to to figure out is there someone to talk to and i guess maybe a good starting point might be your family physician your gp um someone someone who is actually on your side he or she is your wingman and most people don't really realize that and and click on to that they know psychologists they know what support networks are there in your neck of the woods and only because you're not a veteran doesn't mean to say that there are actually not some very clever people out there who have been in your shoes. However unique your circumstances are, guys, it is probably not that you have invented the wheel. Okay? It's, 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 it has been done before. So, and whatever shit people have gone through, unfortunately, there will be other people who have gone through actually similar shit. And it's as unbelievable, believable as it may seem to you. Please, 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 you are not alone in your darkness. You are not alone in what has occurred to you. And you are not alone in your suffering. But you have good choices. I think that is what CQ and I are all about. You To make you guys realize out there, you have got the choice to rephrase the question. Not why me, what me, but what is happening, for example, and what can I do about it? So just this, it doesn't change the circumstances, but it changes maybe the way you look at things and how you go about things and how you go about choosing what you do next. It's all these little choices and it's, it's, it's your life, okay? You, you can't do anything about the past. That has happened but you can very much change the way you look right now at this moment in time and what you plan to do in the future. So CQ, uh, CQ, I mean, thank you so much. We spent bloody two hours, crikey. Guys, you probably have fallen asleep and are waking up back now. <laughs> We're still talking. So sorry for that, guys. <laughs> but <laughs> it is what it is. It is, uh, it, CQ, you're, you're a great guy. And I'm so grateful and I'm happy that I could make this connection with you and that you came here to, to talk to me. I'm, I'm so humbled. Thank you so much.
Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Obviously, my my show is silliness. My show is my show is childishness. <laughs> what you're doing, I, I really believe in it. I love it. Um, this this is this is more what I do, you know, day to day. I love talking about these issues because I feel like um, you know, if you can you can shine a light on the boogeyman, you know, it, it kind of it kind of goes away. It, it makes it weak, it it shrinks it down. So um I really appreciate what you're doing. I hope that people really get something out of this and, and that they can have something to take away and, and share their own uh, drama. Read, reach out to me. I'll talk, I'll talk to anybody that, that wants to talk about their, their, their drama. I'm telling you, I'll, I'll one up you every time. Okay. You think you got it bad, <laughs> but, um, but no, thank you. This has been absolutely fantastic. I love it. Anytime you want me back, I'd, I'd love to talk more. So this was great. I might just have to pick you up on that, and I might just have to get to know this Jenny person a bit better there. I mean, that would be a show in its own right to just oh, yeah. say, okay, CQ, now you come on, go go for a walk. <laughs> Jenny, we do talk. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure oh, yeah. the stories she could tell you, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> cool. Guys, look after yourselves out there and make the, the choice to go towards a better life. It's waiting out there. It's just up to you to do that. Look after yourself, guys. Bye. Bye.